welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Now, sustainability is a topic that we've talked about regularly on the show, and um, particularly in more recent years. Um, so today we're going to get into this in greater detail, and I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of industry experts to discuss the ongoing work being carried out by the construction sector group. And as regular listeners will know, that's spearheaded by show favourite uh, PJ Rudden. So our panellists today are Carolina Backman, architect and uh, research lead with RKD Architects, Brian Cassidy of Cork County Council, uh, Ashlyn Kyo, Design Manager with CISC, and Pat Barry, CEO of the Irish Green Building Council. Now, my co-host for today is Susan McGarry of Ecosem. And Susan, you might just give us an overview. Thank you so much for, for taking the hot seat today. You might just give us an overview as to the, constru- uh, the construction sector group and what this particular subgroup is all about. Absolutely, Carol. Thanks so much. So the, the construction sector group, the CSG, sits within the Department of Expenditure. Um, there's a number of government departments and industry bodies represented within that group. Um, underneath that is the construction sector innovation and digital adaptation subgroup, which is chaired by PJ Wooden. Um, so that group commissioned a report by KPMG on productivity in the construction sector. And from that report came seven key action groups. So there's currently a, a, a committee for each of those seven actions covering construction research, modern methods of construction, skills, um, right across the industry needs. Um, what came from that is that there's a core need for sustainability across each of those action groups, and that's the sustainability group. So that's the representatives that we have here today are uh, the members of that sustainability group. Um, so in terms of what we've done so far, I might pass over to Carolina to talk about the, the sustainability group's objectives and, and the work that we've done so far. Great. Thank you, Susan. Um, Yes, I'm very happy to be here today. I'm the action leader for Action 2 under the Innovation and Digital Adoption Group, which is really looking into kind of innovation and research funding for productivity and sustainability. And so the Sustainability Consultation Group was initially set up to support Action 2 in identifying research and innovation in the Irish construction sector necessary to address sustainability and climate change, and particularly to ensure a successful delivery of housing for all and the climate action plan which are kind of two of our key challenges to ensure that we address both um, and so the group which is really a fantastic consortium of um, about 18 uh, people representing all different industry bodies for, uh, within the sector um, and its initial work uh, to date was kind of a, a report on the priority research areas under the topics decarbonization, circular built environment, climate change resilience, and social value and community well-being. Um, and this report was the result of a, a six-month kind of work sessions uh, with input from the various industry bodies that are represented on the group, but also a survey that we conducted um, with more than 100 industry practitioners on their thoughts, kind of the key obstacles, uh, but also opportunities for the industry. Um, So that report was now published in November 2021, and the group is now taking on that role to kind of be that cross-action group for the seven actions to ensure that the outputs from that report is kind of embedded in all of the actions um, and also putting a particular focus this year on a circular economy and reducing construction waste. Great. So in terms of in terms of the, the, the key targets, so reducing construction waste and, and circular economy, they're so, so important um, to construction. And it, just to give kind of context to that and and the real need in the industry for that, Pat, I know that the Green Building Council has done a huge amount of research around this on embodied carbon. So maybe you could give us some context around the, the need uh, for climate action within construction at the moment. Uh, uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, Yes, uh, construction, um, well, the, the whole built environment sector, um, including buildings and infrastructure, is responsible for over a third of uh, climate emissions in Ireland. So it's a, of equivalent to agriculture. Um, and that's made up of about 23% of that is made up of how we operate our buildings. Um, and it further, which we hadn't really measured before, never really thought about before, 
approximately 11 to 14 percent is made up of the embodied carbon that's the um, carbon that's emitted in the quarrying of materials materials the uh, manufacture of construction products uh, transportation to the site the construction uh, activities that take place to build a building the um, ongoing renovation painting uh, refurbishment of buildings and finally the disposal of buildings so that 14 11 to 14 percent wasn't something we had really thought about before um and those figures are based on 2018 figures so we are now about to start on a much uh, scaling up our construction industry to 2030 we're going to probably nearly double the amount of housing we're built building so that 11 to 14 percent will increase very significantly as a proportion of the um our, our, our national carbon emissions and of course it doesn't really end there either because um you know if we build in a certain way to to low densities we're also getting um uh we're, we are taking over arable land we are releasing carbon from soils we are um uh, disrupting hydrological flows we're causing land sealing so the whole area of construction of housing um, really requires quite a radical um, intervention over the next number of years if we to have any hope of limiting um, climate change or meeting our climate targets of a 51% cut in carbon. So really, if you're to cut carbon by 51% by 2030, it requires really radical intervention in how we build because... If we increase construction by 50%, then we're really looking at maybe cutting carbon intensity of that construction by up to 75%. Thanks, Pat. That, the, the radical intervention there that you mentioned is, I might put this to, to Brian and to Ashling from, from industry, how aware is industry of this need and how readily like adaptable is the industry for, for that that radical transformation that we need in construction. So Brian, I might let you take that first. Yeah, so what, what I would say, um, Susan, is that the, the industry is aware, uh, certainly at management levels and, and even down to operational level, because what people are putting into buildings now reflects thinking on climate action and decarbonisation. Um, in terms of what needs to be done, it is a huge challenge because industry, unlike manufacturing a car where you set up an assembly line and you roll off the cars, in the construction industry is still built on one-off projects, multiple one-off projects, each which is uniquely designed, each of which is uniquely constructed. And what needs to happen is to take that and put it into a modular form, uh, which is the difficult challenge. It's a really big challenge. And but there's no figures to suggest it, it would be hoped that by modularizing the construction of buildings, and that would result in greater uniformity, that we would get the reduction in carbon that is needed uh, in terms of embodied carbon and operational carbon that is needed to, to meet our climate action targets. And the Cork City Council is involved in a, a project with the province of Overeesel in Holland, whereby we're looking at, at this taking the... Um, the retrofitting process and bringing it into a factory. And what comes out of the factory is, is virtually a coat or a skin that will go around your building and will also contain a heat pump and that you'll be able to fit that onto your, onto your home. And that will bring other benefits as well. The installation time on site will be brought down to two or three days. That's the same from the current scenario where it can be up to 20 weeks. Um, and also, the, the, the need for skilled labour should be greatly reduced. Now, different skills will be required, of course, with the intensity of the skills that's required at the moment and the intensity of the labour that's required at the moment to meet Ireland's construction targets and its retrofitting targets is, is, is quite considerable. So by going for a factory-type construction, uh, we should be able to uh, reduce the skills required, reduce the amount of labour required and meet our targets in terms of construction needs and climate action. And sorry, can I just come in at this point as well? I, I think there's a huge amount of um, 
merit to what Brian is saying, definitely from CIS point of view, we're actively looking at modern methods of construction. So, you know, how much can be prefabricated off site and then assembled onto site? Uh, we have our clients who have up to 80% requirements of prefabrication um, for each of their projects. And that's obviously driving a demand. But as Brian said, a higher quality, easier to certify. Um, and from a circular economy point of view, there's a lot less waste involved in prefabrication as well. So uh, everything is built to site, built to measure, so that when it comes to site, it's just easily assembled uh, on site and uh, far more streamlined than it would be in the traditional manner that we've built. So, and modern methods of construction, it means that we were able to scale that up to the, the density and to the, the amount of housing that's required in the coming years. And being able to, um, I suppose, if we have a, a guaranteed pipeline of housing and uh, core components that are required for each of these housing uh, units that are, are that are going to be built in the coming decades, then we should be able to see a reduction in cost and, and most importantly, reduction in waste and materials being used for each of those as well. I'm just about to what uh, Ashley is saying there. Waste, when it occurs on site at the moment, is, is, is building waste and goes to landfill. Waste which occurs in a factory through offcuts and ends can be recycled and reused quite easily um, into the future. And Brian, you touched on something there that I that I just hadn't considered previously, um, but off-site being used for retrofitting, that, yes. that they, they almost seem like um, opposing forces that obviously you're trying to retrofit something in its place. So how do you take a retrofit process off-site so that actually you are reducing that time on-site and, and in existing buildings then to two to three days? Yeah, so, so at the moment, if, if you want to, to retrofit your home, and particularly on the insulation side, you must erect scaffolding, you must put up insulating board, you have to put a skin around that, you have to plaster that and finish it off. If you can take and put in your windows, if you can take that off site and make up panels which contain the insulation, contain the, the, the external render and finish, contains the windows, and you can bring that on a low loader or on a trailer in, in, in the different panels, Put them on site and all you need then is a crane to put them into place and a couple of workers to bolt them onto the facade of the house that exists already. So is this a, is this a solution that's being put not just to uh, the retrofitting programme um, that we saw ramped up in recent weeks, but also actually addressing some of the issues we have in terms of the levels of vacancy in Ireland and obviously uh, derelict properties trying to bring them back into use? I mean... Are, are these are these is this a potential solution there that might actually be a fast win to unlock homes? Um, the, the, the emphasis is on the external skin of the property in with retrofitting. But what's happening on the inside of the house is is still a different matter and is probably more problematic because you're limited by your door size, your window size, and getting in through the oaks if you want to bring anything into the house. So I'd say the focus of of the of off-site construction for retrofitting is on the external skin of the house and on the external appearance. And um, Brian, just um, I actually both for both yourself and Ashley, because Ashley, you made a really great point there that we need this guaranteed pipeline of housing. But can we take our current mismatch of supply and demand as a guaranteed pipeline of housing so that we can actually invest in MMC? I mean, I think the reality of it is that it has to be a systemized approach. So there has to be that every house um, that's being looked at is is broken down into component parts and each of those component parts can be prefabricated or the most number of those can be prefabricated off-site. And thereby it opens up a number of opportunities in different manufacturers who can then invest in factories to create uh, these to be, to be prefabricated off-site and then uh, delivered. So if you can th think of the prospect of there's a go-away factory that are you know, who are manufacturing uh, timber doors in bulk, you know that the materials are being used um, very efficiently. They have a guaranteed supply of that, that any kind of any housing being built are going to be one of maybe three, four or five different types of door timber doors that can be manufactured by multiple manufacturers. And they can then be brought to site as a result of that. So it's opening, I suppose it's, it's, it's providing um, the manufacturers with 
the assurance is that there is a pipeline of housing and that it will all be within a very standardized approach. Um, but also um, that the quality doesn't um, doesn't uh, is, in, is in a way lowered. If anything, prefabrication means that it's higher quality and uh, far more efficient in materials, but uh, potentially very, very cost efficient way of doing things as well. But it, it means having a very potentially a, a portfolio approach. So it's not just a one off housing estate. It's having multiple housing estates buying into the prefabrication, buying into a manufacturer supply of timber doors. And that means that it has, I guess, everyone gets to reap the benefit of prefabrication and modern methods of construction. Okay, thanks, Ash. Do you think where we are, and I'm actually throwing this out to, to the panel, so anybody please jump in. Um, I, I'm where we are in terms of our adoption of uh, offsite and other modern methods of construction. Um, is there is there enough focus being put on designing for offsite at this stage? Because Pat, you know, you mentioned some really interesting stats there in terms of um, the the life cycle. So you know, for example, twenty three percent emissions um, accruing through the life cycle of a building. So actually, do we need to be doing more at design stage to design in those life cycle efficiencies? Yes, I'm sorry. I'm very happy to take this question Please if do. I can. Yes, to give an update as well on some of the work that's happening in the different action groups of the innovation and digital adoption subgroups. So um, really, it's very exciting some of the activities that's happening. Obviously, Action 3 is really the group looking at accelerating modern methods of construction. Um, and many of our kind of sustainability group members are also involved in this group. Um, and they have just recently kind of released the report on the current state of modern methods of construction in Ireland and done a fantastic job in kind of outlining really all the available manufacturers that are out there and how we can bring the industry to the next level. Um, and then likewise, as a kind of a result of this initial report, which is very much focused on the, the manufacturing and the contractor side, the RIAI have taken on to kind of do a follow-up report more focused on how we bring in that design focus in the early stages to make sure that the entire kind of design, um, call it rollout, is focused on um, modern methods of construction from the beginning. So there's a, a new working group within the RIAI looking into designing for manufacturing and assembly and also disassembly, because the hope there again is that we can kind of take this opportunity to also really bring modern methods of construction as a mean to really enter a circular built environment uh, in the future. Okay, thanks, Caroline. And you touched on something actually in your in your um, earlier point there about maybe some of the key obstacles, but also opportunities. Look, let, let's focus on some of the obstacles at the moment to the adoption of MMC. And again, I, I'm putting it to Carolina, but any of our panel are welcome to jump in. If I may, I'm, I'm going to jump in. I, I suppose one of the key obstacles is a lot of the decision making is happening in the early design stages. And for a contractor and subcontractor who has to input a lot of design information for the likes of design for manufacturing assembly and modern methods of construction, really, we need to be involved much earlier on in the design and to be uh, collaborating with the design team, the clients, to be able to really um, reap the benefits of the modern methods of construction because there's so much to it. And there's so, uh, and you need to kind of know the limitations of, you know, what is, you know, what are the limitations of the assembly? What's the limitations of the manufacturing? You know, um, if you consider if it is, you know, a timber frame structure of a house, let's say there are limitations based on transportation. And then when it comes to actually on site, you might only be able to feasibly have a, a small crane. So there's a limitation on how you can actually assemble that, that house um, as a result. So all of those kind of key pieces of information all need to be informed informing the design team, being incorporated early on in the design team. And ultimately, um, it's one huge collaborative effort between all parties. That's a real shift in, in, the, in, the, in the overall industry, though, and, and how we go about designing and construction, uh, constructing our buildings. It's, it's a big shift. And I think one of the points in, ter in terms of challenges or, or barriers, it's both the tools out there for designing sustainably and then also the skill set. Those are two new areas for Ireland. As Pat said, this is the first time we've ever had embodied carbon information out there in the industry. And to know that 14% of our emissions is, is, is from that embodied uh, carbon piece. 
So I'll put that to everyone in terms of tools that we're using or that your companies might have taken on board recently and then how you're finding the skills gap as well around that uh, designing sustainably. So if I could just come in there on, on the uh, sustainability of, of off-site construction. If you look at it at the moment, we bring materials to site and we assemble them. And that sounds very, very environmentally friendly because you're doing everything on site, but it results in a lot of waste that can't easily be recycled. If you look at off-site construction, the log- logistics are considerably greater. And, and we've seen this on the uh, over-resale project called Zero, which I mentioned earlier. The logistics with off-site cons- construction are very considerable because you're limited in terms of what the transportation system can allow. So if you take bridge heights of 4.5 metres, road widths, uh, trailer lengths that are allowed to get around corners and roundabouts. There, there, there are a number of limita- lim- limitations there, but it does, as Ashley said, give you a better quality finish, a better quality product, and it, it pushes all of the design or all of, yeah, all of design work to the very start of the project. So that there's very much reduced scope for on-site decision making in terms of what do we do next, and, and that's that'll be a big plus in terms of of reducing waste. But logistically, it, it is a, a as the into zeros project is, is highlighting uh, a big logistical challenge. Yeah, it's uh, within the the, the lead uh, building rating system, which is run by the US Green Building Council, there's a, a specific uh, core credit area called an integrative approach. And it's, it's something that needs to be adapted here for every construction project so that these design decisions can be made by everyone that's involved in the project the whole way along. So those early decisions can be made. Um, Pat, in terms of um, the tools available and how you guys are going about your research, how aware do you think the, the rest of the industry is? Or is the, is the rest of the industry kitted up and, and ready to, to do make these design, design decisions and, and make material changes and move to modern methods? Well, I think there's been a transformation in the past year in or 18 months around um, things like embodied carbon. Um, we, we have seen far more interest in it. Um, you know, we've I think we've trained up maybe 200 people, 200 professionals in the past year alone around embodied carbon. Um, we've uh, re- just released um, a free tool for the industry um, to, to exactly input into that early uh decision making so when you start when you start to do detailed calculations after you've received planning permission you're usually a little bit too late to actually make all of those early design decisions around you know modern methods of construction or around radically reducing the embodied carbon content of your building so it's really important to get those tools and into the hands of architects at the conceptual design stage because quite often it can be linked to um, you know things as basic as you know do you really need to have a basement car park or the ground conditions or the the grid the grid of the building you know which grid you choose whether you choose you know a a 7.2 meter grid or a, a five meter grid all of these have quite a significant impact on your embodied carbon so the I suppose the benefits of putting tools out there that educate the market and allow them to make these early decisions um, can be quite transformative. Um, so I think we are, over the next year, we shall see a complete mindset change in how um, designers approach uh, construction, at least we, we, we hope. And then that should feed into a whole new supply chain of um, different low embodied carbon materials, um, uh, new innovative products and structural systems. So once we put the start the measurement, that should drive a whole wave of innovation in its own right. In the same way, you know the BER uh, energy efficiency, we've you know achieved a seventy percent reduction in operation, uh, more efficient homes over the past ten to twelve years. We can do the same with construction. And um, Pat, thanks for that. I, I think you're right. Measurement does drive innovation, but also adoption. But when you talk about measurement, or not not just measurement, but it has to feed into policy as well. So, for example, um, you know, in terms of planning applications, how much does embodied carbon factor into planning decisions now, or how much is it likely to factor into planning decisions in the future 
when there is an accepted measurement to be able to be able to measure this? Well, at the moment, it isn't, uh, and it is not considered at all. We're currently working on a roadmap uh, for net zero carbon um, to 2050. And as part of that, we're setting out recommendations for uh, planning, procurement and regulations. And as part of that, under planning, we would like to see at least basic um, reporting of carbon at planning stage. And we'd also like to think uh, to see development plans actually considered embodied carbon. So, you know, if they're even looking at where they build, you know, the actual site location will impact the groundworks and that'll have a very significant impact on, on carbon. Minimum car parking requirements uh, dictate whether you need an underground car park or not, which has huge cost and carbon impacts, about 30 tonnes of carbon per car space. Um, so um, if we're looking at development plans, we need to we need to consider embodied carbon in a very integrated way into the development plan and in what we are looking from for our design team. So, so it's even as basic as is the building needed? Do we really need to demolish the building? Could we could we renovate it instead? Um, and like over the next eight years, we have so little time, as the IPC report from yesterday um, states. So we have to take. We have to be prepared to be really, really quite radical now. We can't. It, it, it's not time for incremental change. It's time for doing the unthinkable. Uh, and Pat, you know, you you've used this term radical, uh, radical at least three or four times. And I, I, I'm sitting here thinking: Is there an, a an appetite for that? be the resources to do it and by resources i don't just mean funding and and knowledge base but skills to execute it um but I, my mind keeps going back to where are the barriers why are we running into resistance why hasn't this been done why isn't it being done so what are the obstacles to radical um thinking that you, and the radical change that you see is needed I might just pop in there carol in terms of the modern methods of construction report that was published um a huge number of um, off-site manufacturers were surveyed for that. And one of the things that came out of it was that sustainability is not high up on the priority list for off-site manufacturers because it's very much still a price-based situation. So we need to incorporate sustainability into everything. It needs to be key to how we're constructing. But when it actually comes down to the tendering process and winning contracts, you're still looking at price. So that's that's there's there's an issue there in terms of we need to push the envelope a little bit more to to get the industry to move, and you need to allow the industry to move to these more sustainable practices in a cost effective way. And and in some cases, it may not be the immediate cost effective way, but it may have longer term savings. But they shouldn't be penalised for that if their solution is more sustainable in the long run. There should still be that kind of um, allowance for that. So that's one thing that I've noticed from from just dealing with um, precast concrete manufacturers. I know price is always an issue um, and margins are really, really tight and construction materials are, are rising in cost every day, but we still need to build sustainably. I think that's a great point. The difference between at the moment, uh, this is seen as a cost, the value. So essentially the value has yet to to be known. One thing we've seen across, um, say, other stages of the built environment, like certainly um, across asset management, we're seeing this huge drive towards ESG investing, and that's really been a driver. So their, you know, funds aren't investing in the built environment unless it's meeting these sustainability criteria. So on construction, where are we falling short? What needs to change? If I and could come in there, I, I think a lot more work needs to be done because part of it will be driven by regulation. You know, once something becomes known, you can regulate for it. And I think at the moment, uh, the, the, and I'm open to correction there from Pat and others. The, the whole story with embodied carbon is that it's it's difficult to assess and, and difficult to regulate. And until we can get to a situation with through research, uh, which is a very important outcome for for this group, it's going to be difficult to regulate for embodied carbon in construction and indeed in all industries. Uh, the carbon needed to 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 build the the, the product. Ninety three point nine Dublin South FM. 
are consumers ready for this? We keep talking about the industry, which obviously is important, but because there's a cost that, that's going to have a knock-on effect on consumers, are consumers driving this change at all? Or do you think that it's a case that they're sitting back and, and taking what the industry is offering? Well, I suppose if I could come in, um, but when we talk about the consumer, and that's where the, the radical comes in, it's because we may have to affect what the consumer wants. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily a cost because if we're saying, okay, you expect an underground car park to come with your apartment and that costs 100,000 to build and it's 35 tonnes of carbon, then we have to turn around and say, sorry, that's not environmentally acceptable anymore. That's where the radical comes in because you're not giving people business as usual. You're starting to say, you can't have that because of the environmental impact. And, and that's where we have to go back to the consumer and say, some things are not sustainable anymore. So building low-density housing with a front and back garden, that's not feasible anymore. You can't have it on environmental grounds. That's where radical, it's not just changing the construction, it's changing the mindset of the consumer. Um, Pat, you you gave me a figure that that actually kind of blew my mind a bit, that um, in order to meet demand, the increase in construction over the next decade would actually entirely blow our carbon budget if we don't make changes. Um, I think that was one of the points, one, that, one of the, the points you made. Um, so if we, I, I suppose there's an impetus then for change if we're saying in the next 10 years, business as usual means that targets will not be hit at all. Is that is that enough to motivate change from policymakers and the cultural shift needed across the industry? If I could come in there, uh, I, I think there is there is a requirement of, on behalf of industry, government and society to sell the message that we need to decarbonise our lives. And it would be part of that message that the construction industry's methods of, of, of building, uh, putting buildings in place for people to utilise that, that will come about. So, for example, at the moment, Corkset Council is engaged in a European project called Intensify, and we're looking at best practice and how to change consumer behaviour so that they do reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, particularly in relation to transport and in relation to how they utilise their homes. And it, part of it is aimed towards encouraging people to retrofit their homes. So I think the message in terms of getting it out there is already underway. The scale of it may need to intensify uh, over the next few years in order to, to persuade people that this is for their own benefit, for society's benefit, and for the benefit of future generations. And, and that will be a very important message that we need to keep bringing home to people in both our own industry, the construction industry, and in other aspects of, of society as well. Yeah, no, that's that's a very fair point. I think, um, Carolina, this is a point that you've made as well, that we just cannot continue with business as usual if, again, if we are to meet the, the objectives um, of the action plan, but also in terms of housing for all. So is it a case that, you know, as, as Brian articulated there, we do need to be not just um, sharpening the message, but selling the benefits, letting people understand that actually... It's not business as usual, um, but but how how say you're you're working through um, an ar- uh, as an architect? How do you play that your part in that? Oh, we have a, a major role in that, I guess, because we're really I think as architects, it's really important to understand that we are the, the primary con- contact form of point of contact for clients and so a that we in that beginning really have an important role in kind of communicating the decisions that we make and how they impact the sustainability performance of buildings and here again I think that the access we now have to tools really helps us like helps that communication because we can show the evidence behind each decision that we make and that makes it a lot easier but I think it's completely right that communication to change consumer behavior as well is really needed to kind of focus on the benefits that it's not a penalty to not have a a car park in front of your house it actually opens up the opportunity to have a a completely green garden in front of your house that you can use instead and that's choosing 
maybe a bit more expensive at the moment, but hopefully not in the future. More sustainable building materials also have significant health benefits of the occupants of the building. Um, and that those are the kind of things that we need to communicate and that they happen already both in Ireland and abroad. We're seeing in, in, in Denmark and Germany, they're really pushing for this you know, car parking requirements in front of your house. Instead, they have a central car parking point uh, where unless you absolutely need a car to access your house, your car is there and you have to walk 10 minutes to get to your home. Um, it's seen as public transport. It's a way of kind of moving around and it offers up the streets to greenery instead. Yeah, and look, that's absolutely the direction we need to be heading. However, we cannot we cannot ignore the reality that is our public transport offering today. Yeah, that is. I think it's also important, sorry, to put across. Just I think it's important as well when we're talking about costs. If we bring it back to circular economy and keeping materials in really resourceful, valuable materials in circulation for a lot longer, then it actually has the possibility of having annual savings of something in the range of two point three billion euros per year to the Irish economy like there's massive savings to be made if we actually look more um, embedding uh, sustainability and circular economy principles into how we do what we do in our businesses. Um, And Ashley actually you made a a great point there in terms of sustainability requires a reconsideration and reprioritizing of our values and I think it's something we're starting to do on a uh, at an organizational level and a personal level. So maybe we need better integration of those, but within your own organization there, um, I know that there's there's a strong ethos there in terms of leading uh, responsible business practices. How does that translate into actions? What are the actions that, that individuals and businesses take? Need oh, I know. Yeah, well, I know from CISC, we have a 2030 roadmap and we've made it very clear that our overall ambition is to be carbon neutral without offsetting by 2030, including scope one and scope two. And realistically, we've, we've 21 targets across five themes, all ranging from tackling climate change to caring for the environment, enhancing communities, embracing technology. Um, and we're firmly working our way, you know, working f- away from fossil fuels. We're looking at, you know, having a fully electric fleet by 2030. Um, we have an example of a civil upgrade project down in Duncattle, which is um, is using hydro treated vegetable oil as opposed to diesel, and it's resulted in 90% less diesel emissions. Um, and then even just in terms of embedding circular economy principles into CISC, you know, we have a small, it was an initiative in the UK and we're hoping to bring it out in Ireland, but it's called Palace Loop. So essentially all of the deliverables from a manufacturer, for manufacturers are delivered on site onto pallets and those pallets are stored, collected and they're returned to the distribution office and then reused. It's very simple, but it removes waste out of our landfills and keeps pallets in use on our sites. And if we can take those simple principles of circular economy and try and uh, apply them to multiple different aspects of construction, you'll find that um, there's a huge benefit overall. And we're all working together for the same ultimate goal, which is that we are net carbon and uh, we are achieving the, the, the requirements and the targets of the Climate Action Bill. Um, you know, when you talk about working together, we understand that the solution lies in collaboration. However, I'm very aware and even more aware this morning after this conversation that um, this subgroup is made up of um, multidisciplinary. So there are different interests and different interests that would have traditionally held different agendas. So, uh, again, I'm throwing this out to the, to all the panel Um Are there instances, and and if so, how can they be overcome, of agendas differing? Um, Maybe the the interests won't be completely aligned. How is the industry going to battle that? Is it a case that the loudest voice wins? Is it a case, you know, where are we we running into challenges when it comes to collaboration? I might take that one, Carol, from speaking from the, the cement industry side of things. So the cement industry essentially hasn't changed for 100 years. Uh, we still use regular Portland cement. Um, it has a carbon footprint of about 800 kilos of CO2 per ton. Um, it's our most widely used material in construction. And it's a it's the it's 90 percent of the carbon of concrete comes from the, the cement component. Um, cement production in Ireland is responsible for 4% of our national greenhouse gas emissions, 20% of our industrial emissions, 
And from Pat's research, it's uh, about 50% of the, the emissions from construction materials is, is purely from the cement component. So for the past 10 years, that's that's what I've been doing with working with EcoSound. We're a low carbon uh, cement supplier, uh, but we've pivoted over the past couple of years into research and development to provide solutions to decarbonize the cement sector. So right now we're in a totally different phase where we're open arms trying to work with the cement industry and partner with the cement industry to provide solutions to our customers who are the concrete producers. And the concrete producers are very forward thinking. They're doing a huge amount of work to decarbonize, but they're limited in terms of what they can do because of the cement that's available. And the cement that's available here is high carbon. And back to what Ashley's saying about the cost savings, cement, as it is, is going to get more and more expensive due to the price of carbon. So the price of carbon is at 83 euro today, I think. The free allocations from the EU ETS scheme are going to start to decline. By, in 2026, they're going to decline uh, piece by piece. And that cost is going to be passed on directly to the consumer. There's no way around it. So we need to change fundamentally how we produce this core construction material. And there, there is technology available today. That's that's what my company do. That's what we research. There's several other companies out there that do um, cement-free concrete and, and different technologies. There's calcinated clays. Um, there's my product, GGBS. There's new byproducts to come from the changing industry as well. Like new technologies will produce new byproducts that can then be trialed and tested to, to be used as uh, cement replacements. So... A, a big thing for me is changing a, a, a mammoth of an industry, an absolutely huge organization or not organization, a huge industry um, collective to use new low carbon materials um, that will save the country money and keep our competitive exports as well. Because there's five million tons of cement produced on this island and two million of which are exported. Those exports will not be wanted when we're the higher carbon and higher cost exports. So that for me is a big change to, to, that needs to come. There's about 2.9 million tons of carbon comes right now from the cement industry. We're due to grow by about 40%. That'll bring it up to about 3.6 million tons. Currently, the only real targets we have around cement is using alternative fuel substitutes, which is a really, really valid technique, but it only hits the first one third of the emissions from cement. It only touches off the fuel. It doesn't cover the process emissions. And the only way you can hit that and reduce that is by lowering the amount of, of the high polluting component of cement, which is clinker, by reducing the amount of that that we're consuming. And that's through using alternatives and byproducts and different technology. That's a fantastic example of reframing this from maybe some of the challenges that were embedded over the last century to unlocking opportunities. And we know that unlocking opportunities across the industry is actually what will really drive um, take up and adoption. Where are the other opportunities that are ready to be unlocked that would really create the culture shift that's needed now? Can I come in on that? Um, I suppose we have one of the most fantastic climates in Ireland for growing bio-based materials. Um, we can grow wood faster than any other country in Europe. Um, and we really need to unlock um, the potential of that. Uh, we have a huge amount of forestry coming on stream over the next uh, 20 years. Um, and an awful lot of that has been exported. Um, there is... If you look across the, the water at our neighbours in the UK, the UK has become one of the leading um, countries in the use of uh, cross-laminated timber. They're building very tall structures out of timber. Um, and I suppose talking about the barriers, we need to address the barriers that are preventing us from um, uh, from using that technology here. Um, and you know, there's some regulatory issues that we need to deal with to allow that to happen. And it's not just timber. Um, there's products that we can grow really, really well. We grow best, we're best country for growing, growing grass as well. So um, products like hemp um, can be grown very easily in Ireland. Um, uh, the Department of Agriculture is just carrying out a feasibility study at the moment to um, look at development of uh, wool production and wool insulations. So at the moment, we're importing nearly 100% of our insulations from the rest of Europe, either as finished product or as chemicals. And 
that too, insulation, we're going to need so much of it over the next few years. Um, it's going to be a significant part of our embodied carbon. There is incredible opportunities to create rural-based um, industries around forestry, around bio-based materials over the next few years. And that's the hemp is a particularly interesting one, Pat, I, because I had only ever heard of that in the context of insulation, whereas actually just in recent days, I was reading a study that's um, looking at tempering hemp so that it will have the the strength of steel. So actually it could be used as a structural element. So these are, um, you know, again, an example of innovation that could unlock winds that that just aren't even on our radar at the moment um so actually I, you know in in our last few minutes that we have together i think that's a really nice theme to follow on as in where are the early wins what can individuals and businesses be doing or what do they need to be doing more of carolina from your own perspective there what do you see as kind of the important next steps well I think maybe this is also coming as a, as action leader for the Innovation and Digital Adoption Group. But I think keeping these type of cross-disciplinary conversations going is really key. And getting having them early, early on in the design process is the first step because it just unlocks and solves so many of the challenges you face later in a project. So really having the early sessions of sustainability kind of workshopping and um and like there's no limit thinking uh, of outlining what opportunities are and then trying to go for some of them. And I just want to say as well, because I think that is something that will really support um, the sector in the future is that kind of the, the overall outcome of these seven actions that the, the overall subgroup is looking at is to kind of establish a national center of excellence for construction that will um kind of encompass both the technology center supporting necessary research and development and modern methods of construction center, both looking at kind of development of offsite prefabrication, material testing and validation of products, and also linking that back into kind of a build digital center for building information modeling and the tools that are necessary to kind of bring the productivity into the delivery of all of this as well. So I think it's a really exciting time just to have all of these collaborations happening. And I think this cross-disciplinary conversation is key to achieving what we want to achieve. Yeah, and I think exciting is the right word. And, and as you speak about it there, it does come across as a real call to innovation uh, from the industry. So that's exciting. I mean, Ashling, we already know that within your organization, that call to, to innovation has definitely been answered. In fact, you know, it, it's you're, you're definitely leading from the front, you know, which is, which is important. But from that vantage point, have you had an opportunity to see what works and maybe why? I mean, I, I think there's two things with that, leading from the front, but also making sure that our supply chain are coming along on the journey with us as well. So, you know, when we talk about leading on responsible business practices, it's about making sure that our supply chain and our subcontractors and all who are involved in, in our business practices are actually buying into the sustainability strategy that we have and are inputting into it as well and um, are with us every step of the way. Um, and then I suppose what's really important is you know, the digital tools, like Carolina spoke about, was being able to test that, like test our um, assumptions in a digital format before we actually physically make it. So, you know, the, the likes of the carbon assessment that Pat talked about earlier on, is it is it as low as we expect it to be at the design stages? And as, if we keep on critically reviewing that at, at multiple times during the project stages, then we'll know that by the time that we actually build it, we are assured that that building is going to, is going to you know, fulfill the the, the critical requirements of um, the carbon action plan and also everything from you know if, if it has to be prefabricated that can be tested if how it's to be assembled that's tested in a digital format and then most especially from a circular economy point of view if it needs to be dis when it, it is disassembled how much of those components can be disassembled and reused in a, in a different life a different iteration of, of our building. Okay, Ashley, thank you. Thank you for that. I, you know, I, I think that maybe that's a good point to send over to Brian because Brian, obviously, um, through Cork, County, or Cork uh, City Council, um, the, the, the city councils have come under increasing pressure and maybe there isn't the same bandwidth for um, innovation or certainly trial and error. There, there isn't the same um, tolerance for trial and error because that's, that implies a certain amount of error as well. So how is that? 
How is that working from the procurement side of things? It's 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 working quite well. Um, it, aspects of it are difficult, and and you know if you if you were to say to me, uh, how, how would a local authority encompass embodied carbon into its procurement? It's it's too early to say yet because as 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 a research industry, embodied carbon hasn't come to a stage where it can say this is what you can do in practical terms. But on, there's a lot of other areas where the local authorities are, are very busy in terms of climate action, sustainability. So Cork City Council, like a lot of local authorities, has tied its, its annual service delivery plans and, and its development goals into the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It's actively participating with local research institutions in UCC and in MTU, uh, providing a pl test platform where they can carry out uh, trials on ideas that they have where they can secure, even when they can, they can secure European funding through the Horizon 2020 project scheme or, or Interreg Europe. So as a local authority, we're actively engaged with the research institutions locally. I think from the construction industry's point of view, in terms of research, there is an awful lot of research going on in the country. There's an awful lot of collaboration going on in the country. However, there's a lack, from the industry's point of view, there may be perceived to be a lack of focus. And if the industry had its own centre of excellence, and its own uh, research, it could focus on what matters to the industry specifically. So Susan uh, mentioned concrete, Ashley mentioned the supply chain, Pat mentioned embodied carbon, uh, and, and Carolina speaks about the need for design at the very early stages of a project. So if we had a, a, a research institution dedicated to the needs of construction, we could do a lot to focus both the minds of the other research institutions and bring them in and collaborations that we need, uh, that would make a huge change and, and result in a huge shift in focus. And we must remember that it is often said that Irish people have built half the construction buildings in the world. But we also have a, an opportunity here now to influence how those buildings are constructed in the future. And that's a goal we should all aspire to and set Ireland up as, as a leading research place for, for construction. Yeah, that's a really inspiring word, Brian. And, and the key that you've said there focus on what matters and that's that's the most important thing focus on what matters soon susan as as we wrap up um and in the in the words of focusing on what matters in terms of the obje objectives what's next for the construction sector group subgroup um the core focus really for us now is is circular economy and building sustainability into the delivery of the Housing for All Plan and the Project Ireland 2040 National Development Plan. That's okay, really that's it. And then we will focus on what matters. That's it from us today. My thanks to our panellists there, Carolina Backman of RKD Architects, Brian Cassidy, Cork City Council, Ashlyn Kyo, Design Manager with CISC, and Pat Barry, CEO of the Irish Green Building Council. And Susan, a special note of thanks to you, Susan McGarry um, of Ecosem. You know, sometimes we need the insights that can be gained, not through the right answers, but through the right questions. So thank you. I appreciate your insight and your expertise yeah. here today. So that's it from us on Property Matters. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to Luke Delaney and Peter Rice on sound. We'll be back at the same time next week. Gurmagat August Stronghold.